Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The problem is there's a misalignment with what a high percentage of Australians see as a primary asset or wealth building class, which is property. And so we, we took a, a decision to shift away and totally abandon financial planning and, and shift to more a property consultancy. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Taran Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with Sam Khalil, the Managing Director and Founding Member of the DPN Group of Companies. In delving into his experiences growing up and starting businesses, he shares all about the path he nearly took, why financial literacy is paramount and why haggling isn't always worth it in the end. With over 27 years in business under his belt and a team of over 70 people across Australia, Khalil has a wealth of knowledge in all things business. Between property development, financial planning and more, there isn't much he hasn't tried. However, everything he does is tied together and always aligned with his humanistic values. My usual day is at least 100 emails, a number of calls with you know, key team staff. You know, developing you know innovative projects within the group. Um, you know, uh, innovating, enhancing what we do. Connecting with my wife, which is really important. So you know, I, I like to read. I read uh, spy novels. So yeah, Tom Clancy. I like that style. <laughs> you know, fairly fairly long books and stuff like that. So I haven't watched TV for years. So. Considering his family's history in education, it isn't a surprise that Khalil prefers books to TV. Yeah, look, so interesting background. I was born in Sudan, which is in northeastern uh, Africa, neighbours Egypt. Uh, wasn't there for long. My dad won a scholarship uh, out of seven nations in northern Africa to the London School of Economics. So when I was born, my grandmother took care of me for the first six months. My mum and dad went. He started at the London School of e- Economics. Then we followed and we lived there for three years while he got, got his doctorate there. Then he got a job with the Reserve Bank of Australia and we ended up in Australia. Um, and so I grew up, um, you know, we start off in Asheville, which is sort of uh, in the west of Sydney, and we moved to Bangor in the Sutherland Shire. So I grew up in the Sutherland Shire, uh, went to a boys' school called Janelli Boys High School. It was pretty rough. There's a bit of uh, <laughs> street smart you learn in, in, in certain uh, regards. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my upbringing, in, in, you know, and it was, it's, you know, Sydney cider since then and lived more in the eastern beaches after that. His father passed away when Khalil was just six years old, but he didn't lack for father figures. Pretty sad, but um, my mum got married again and, you know, stepdad, I mean, he passed away a few years ago, but he, he was fantastic, you know, as a dad and so, you know, I didn't see him as a stepdad in regard, but it wasn't like there was a, a connection with my dad and his economics. I don't know, it's probably more genetic than uh, social or, you know, nurture, uh, 
but yeah, so it, it's yeah, it's probably more the pathway I went. So you know, if we sort of talk about the type of work I started doing, I, I worked in freight forwarding after school, uh, then some uh, gym membership sales, office products. But it was, but yeah, it was more a friend of mine that um, you know said to me, "Hey, look, there's this new industry; it's exploding and growing. It was financial planning, and I got into financial planning before." I got really into more property-focused uh, services or businesses or investment. That's very interesting because I, I, it sounds like you went down the path of what your dad, you know, was supposed to do. It was a bit different. Like he was working on actually at the time like computer systems for the Reserve Bank. It, it was early stages in helping create computer modeling for the Reserve. So, you know, he, he sat more at a level where you're creating policy and, um, you know, data at a national level. You know, so he was a professor in economics, so I didn't go down that pathway. As he's been in Australia for the vast majority of his life, he's definitely one to call Australia home. I guess if you, if many people can recall anything before the age of four, it's very, it's only patchy and just little pictures and that. So Australia is all I've known, and you know, uh, you can hear by my accent. There's no, there is no accent. <laughs> it's just well, it's Australian, so it's not like I have a. Uh, an accent that's uh, from the Middle East or Northern Africa. <laughs> and have you been back to, to home country of Sudan recently? Yeah, look, only once when I was nine, so I don't really, it's not a reference point for me, so Australia is really home for me. I mean, I, I speak Arabic, uh, but it's broken. Um, so, you know, family and friends would laugh at me when I speak and I struggle. So I probably have the vocabulary of about a four or five year old in Arabic. So. With such a highly educated father, you might expect Khalil to have gone straight to university from high school. However, he had other plans. Started working. I, went, I just wanted to work for a year, so that's what I went into uh, shipping. I got a job straight out of school and handling, you know, big vessels that came in and unloaded cargo and stuff like that. So I worked for a freight forwarding company. Um, and then, interesting enough, I went to a theological seminary. I thought I was going to be a minister. And so I did that for a couple of years and worked part time. Um, and yeah, so I thought I was going to go down that pathway, but it didn't end up going that way. <laughs> if I go into, you know, like the impact of losing my father at a young age and stuff like that, I'm, you know, it's very shy. And I was really impacted by my local youth group and my church community, which had a really, you know, strong formation of my character, my confidence. And I mean, I struggled as a kid just even eating, I'd, I'd vomit at birthday parties. I was just so anxious, you know. But it was transformational for me to be part of my local church and youth group and that. And I got a lot of encouragement. And I guess, you know, for me, father figures in the church were sort of like the ministers and the youth leaders and what have you. So it had such a profound impact. I guess it's like a kid who's had a, maybe a, a tough home life and have a teacher that has an impact on them and they thought, I want to be a teacher, you know. And so for me, it was that sort of uh, impact uh, on me that I thought, you know, I really want to help people go down that pathway. But interestingly, I mean, even in church, they, you know, the minister get up and talk about the footy or something and, on the, you know, to warm up the crowd and stuff. And I actually, you know, when I'd read the paper, we used to use read physical papers, I would um, go to the sports section and throw it out. I didn't really care, but I'd be interested in the business section. And it, was just, it just seemed that was in my DNA. It's just what I would naturally go to. I was interested in businesses and business models and stories and stuff like that. So, yeah, I wasn't necessarily drawn to, to sport. And it's funny, like, I mean, I'd meet famous sports people. I'd have no idea who they are. And they'd walk to me because I wouldn't be, you know, falling over them in any way. <laughs> so, but, you know, so I'd meet famous cricketers and they say that. I said, are you any good? It's a different pathway for me in, in, you know, starting there. But I guess 
what I was passionate about uh, about end up you know pulling me over that way in the end I end up back in business because it's you know, I was sort of conflicted because I, I was it was probably more my heart in a certain degree that you know that was affected growing up and saying okay I want to go down this pathway but I kept getting drawn back to you know being involved in business and entrepreneurial. His friend from church who got him the membership sales role at the gym was also the catalyst for Khalil's next career move as well. He went into the financial planning industry and said, hey, you know, you got to come and check that. And I was always interested in finances and things and obviously, you know, how you had to help people make money. And that. so that's when I jumped into that field and, you know, studied and got a diploma in, in you know, financial planning and what have you. But it was always on the job training. So I, 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 for somehow, some people tell, say school was the best part of their life. I, I couldn't wait to get out of school. And so I was more inter- interested in practical application and training and, and doing stuff as, as we go through, which is very different because it was very hard for my mum because, you know, coming from a nation that was very poor, education, particularly um, tertiary or, you know, university support, and that my father was a professor was, she was, you know, wanted me really to go to uni. And, you know, there's the book smart and the street smart, and I took the street smart approach. Well, the main thing, again, is, is obviously that you keep learning and, and, you know, really become great at your craft, whatever that may be. And how long were you in the financial planning space for? Look, a number of years. And it's, it's really what took us into, you know, our business into property because we were uh, doing, you know, quite a broad spectrum of services, anything from managed funds, shares, insurances and, and what have you. And then, you know, obviously an asset class for people was property. And um, just over time, you know, even dealing with uh, business development, uh, people from you know the funds and the funds management industry, you'd sit with them, and there's just the volatility, the share market, and everything, and it was just so much work and so much compliance, and you just found that you know, I mean, I mean, look, you've you've got a podcast on this. Um, people lo- just love property, and <laughs> it was their biggest asset. They made they had most of the wealth, most of my wealth, and I thought, you know what, um, let's just focus more on property and, you know, uh, the vehicle that helps that is finance. So as a business, we made a conscious decision to get out of financial planning. We started getting heavily regulated and, and has continued to do so. And even the government you can see now is that regulated it so much, it's so expensive, and now people that can't afford it don't have access to it. So, you, you know, they've, they've made it safe, but now it's so safe that people who need advice can't access it. So platforms like yours now are, are taking over that role you know, and, you know, people writing books and things like that are actually creating you know, financial literacy and education in that. And it's so people are more, you know, having to go down those channels because, you know, a four to $5,000 financial plan is a large chunk for a lot of people. And sometimes it's too narrow where a lot of the financial planning industry, you know, and they try to change that by making it a fee-based service versus a commission-based service. But property was never a showing on it. So, the problem is there's a misalignment with what a high percentage of Australians see as a primary asset or wealth building class, which is property. And so we, we took a, a decision to shift away and totally abandon financial planning and, and shift to more a property consultancy. DPN has been in business since 1996 and was doing property for the majority of that time. However, it didn't pivot to property full-time until 2008. And the brand, it was, it was Direct Property Network, and then we shortened the name to DPN as a business and have then just built, you know, a, a, an ecosystem of companies uh, as, as we've, you know, uh, grown from just being a small financial planning business. I mean, 
I had there's two business partners. We had our own uh, client base uh, pre 2010, and then we said, look, did we want to more establish a, a, a brand and a business from there? And you know, I began to bring my passion for design and what have you, and you know, really infuse that into the business. And it changed then from just being you know some private practitioners with their own individual client base to creating a corporation and an enterprise. That's amazing. So, it sounds like you, you had a very short amount of time working, um, I guess, for someone and you went pretty much into your in, into your business as a financial planner at a very young age. I was, I was 23 years old, started, I was, I was in office products, I had a company car, earning really good money and it was like, go start a business and leave all the security and work on, you know, mission-based income. And yeah, it was, it was pretty daunting at the time, and you know, so I left and saved up money to make sure I cash flowed myself. But um, you know, I was I was working for under someone else at the time and didn't really like their ethics. Then I left and started a business at the time called Integrated Financial Solutions, which was the genesis of DPN. And um, yeah, that's the financial planning business, and we did that for a number of years and you know, got all the certifications and what have you. But as I said, we shifted down, you know, more property and finance, and then have built some you know, uh, enterprises within that. At the time, his parents were running a cafe. While it wasn't his mother's first choice for a career, she gave it her all and taught her son to do the same. My mum had a degree in sort of law and history and that, but being, you know, uh, new Australians and, you know, English as second language and stuff like, and what she'd studied wasn't relevant here. So, you know, as often they end up in service industries, but, you know, strong work ethic um, you know, provided for us and what have you, but it's not like they had a massive impact on me in relation to the field of work that I've chosen, apart from being very supportive and encouraging. With his work ethic from his family, he had to pick up the property bug somewhere. The influence really was more my, you know, one of my best friends. His name is Rod Stewart, not the singer, but that was his. Name. Um, and then I guess my passion for property was some friends that my wife and I visited, and you know, they'd. Um, you know, renovated a house and I was just fascinated with, you know, interior design and it sort of flicked a, a switch in me that's just, you know, become an obsession more than anything now. You know, I got really interested in design and architecture and all forms of design, whether it be graphic design, interior design, product design. And you can see, you know, one of our core values is phenomenal presentation. So from our website to our product development, we, we focus heavily on having design, you know, the creativity and the intentionality behind that. And I mean, if you see one of the businesses we launched was in the specialist disability accommodation. And um, that's where we entered into a sector that we'd never been involved in through one of our uh, colleagues and clients. And we built a, a home for disabled Australians under the NDIS. And we, we just took our DNA of design, infused it into that product. And, you know, uh, one of my great... Uh, examples or admirers, my admiration was for Apple as an organization and how it, you know, and my staff got sick of me talking about it. But interestingly, we ended up intersecting with Apple at the headquarters and they saw what we're doing. One of Apple's core values is accessibility, which aligns with DPNs. Once they're connected, they collaborated on a project. And then they brought three busloads of people. We opened the house in February 2020, Prime Minister of the time, Scott Morrison. Apple were blown away because we, we, you know, set the global standard for, um, you know, some of the accessibility products using uh, Apple products. So the, the kitchen bench would elevate using Siri and it was secure as well. And to the point that I even had a, you know, a bit of a, a, a you know, a streaming server with some of Apple's key employees globally around it. So 
it was just interesting that these core values that we had and that I've emulated created that opportunity to intersect with an organization that I'd, I'd admired and annoyed my staff with. <laughs> but now they look at now Apple's, you know, involved in our project and, and helping us out in that. And it was, you know, really rewarding to see that, you know, our values that we've practiced and drummed into our team time and time again manifested into a product that set the standard, um, um, you know, for, for disability accommodation and lifted it for everybody else. And it was, you know, always like I talked about, you know, it's like Apple when it entered into the phone market, it never built a mobile phone, but totally transformed it. And I guess it's part of our um, core purpose, which is to empower people to live the life they want. You know, and our BHAG, our big, hairy, audacious goal is to empower millions of people to live the life they want. And it sounds quite audacious and, and that's what it's meant to be. Uh, but for a small company, you know, um, how do you do that? It's not always that you're directly, you know, servicing every single person, but through influence, if you lift standards and you impact your competitors and everybody else, that's how you can impact and empower people's lives. With the NDIS still in its infant stages, it's not quite as well-oiled of a machine as it will be in the future, but it's on its way there. It's tough. It's not as easy, and you know, I think everyone's working on it. But it's a great partnership between government, um, not-for-profit organisations, with a, which are the sole providers, support independent living, and, and and private, you know, development companies like our, our organisation, Casa Capace, DPN Casa Capace. But um, you know, as we open all these homes, each one, it's you know, the the impact on people's lives it brings tears to you. Like we we had, you know, one lady who who'd been living in a hospital for six months because she didn't have a place to stay, but. You know, she came in and she hadn't been showered properly for that time. She had tears because she could now, you know, the way the house was designed, she could have a shower. Um, and, you know, stuff like that, you just don't realise the the impact um, that you can have. But also just how great a nation Australia is. And, if, if you know, if you talk about, you know, um, how can this happen? It's just, you know, we can't take credit for that. It is just, you know, the, the value system our society has and I know there's some challenges with the NDIS, but fundamentally the ethos behind it is just that we place so much value on people and and the fact that we invest so much as a society. And if you look at, I mean, just even history and, you know, what under, you know, Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany, the, the way they treated disabled people, they, they began to, you know, they dehumanised people and they, they, they shunned them. So I think as a society, the fact that we're investing so much on people and lifting value, it has an impact uh, that's far greater than the financial impact, the dignity we've put on people. And it's, you know, like I said, so, you know, I was born in Sudan, but Australia is, is an incredible nation. And, you know, we can complain about a lot of things, but frankly, from our healthcare system, the way we, we treat people, um, you know, you don't want to be in many other nations compared to Australia. When it comes to property, acquiring his first home was a process that many are familiar with. It was uh, as a townhouse that I bought off the plan. There was five townhouses in the project at Colonel uh, Street or Colonel Road in Cronulla. And it was $215,000. And, you know, we scraped everything. Uh, and it's just before we got married and we just put a deposit down. It was um, 20%. My parents gave me a few thousand dollars. We didn't want to pay mortgage insurance at the time. And so the loan was, you know, $156,000. At the time, I thought, that's a mountain of debt. How am I ever going to pay that off? It was overwhelming the numbers, you know, $156,000. Now it's laughable. It's, you know, a lot of people earn. But at the time, it was just like, this is crazy. And it was interesting. I met 
um, uh, Sean and Katrina, who are, who are friends, but Sean's now a business partner in the business, but we were there and he was teaching at the time and we just we would talk about, oh, you know, imagine you bought five of these and held them for years and, you know, this is not knowing that we'd, we'd end up being in this industry at some point, but we postulated the idea of, uh, with with all this debt, might not it be better to buy properties instead and rent them out and, and, and you know, spread your deposit and hold them over time, not knowing that that's what we're going to have as a business at some point. Is that what happened? It's still a property investment, but it was a home as well. But what, what I do know at the time is other friends were buying pretty flashy cars, taking out a, a car loan for four or five years. We we just saved everything put into the, to get into it. We had a crappy Daihatsu charade. We kept one car. We packed our lunches. We had no furniture. We had furniture probably pre-World War II given by family. You know, and it was all just let's get into the property market. And and what, what was fantastic about it was in three years the, the appreciation on that was double what my friends had bought nice convertibles for and they were still, their cars are now halved in value and they were looking at starting to get into the market. And it was that you know, I think there's a good definition of discipline. Discipline is putting off what you want now for what you want later. And so we just had to go without, but I didn't regret it because the, the, the increase in equity was transformational, whereas those people started coming to see me and ask me for help and say, oh, you know, I've got this great car. And it's like, get your deposit, get into the market. Sorry, get rid of your car, <laughs> get straight into buying the house now. <laughs> Apart from the anomaly of COVID, generally cars don't appreciate. It's just a supply-demand thing, but, you know, it is an anomaly and I think at some point it's uh, – I mean, it's not like you're going to make anything that's going to transform your life. It's great. You know, I mean, there's been some amazing stories with collector's cars, but fundamentally we're talking – it's not a, it's not a, a strategic game-changer for anyone. As for developments – his worst moment is one he wasn't in control of and features in an unnamed but well-known cricketer turned developer. We'd started off with them, um, you know, raising funds from clients to invest in development projects that were largely land subdivisions. And there's just, I guess, a level of trust involved. And they did well and then clients rolled in the next one. And then, but this person kept borrowing too much, high leverage and G- GFC came and, 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 and it just collapsed. And, you know, it was like $2 million of client funds and that was terrible and um, I guess one of the key things we learned out of that um, you know and you learn it in lending it's you know character of the person and um, Lloyd my business partner said you know his grandfather I mean I wish we'd known this principle for him you can never do a good deal with the wrong person and that was such a sage piece of wisdom which is in a, you know we've tried to really keep that at forefront what's the character it doesn't matter how good the deal is it doesn't matter how good the contract you have if the character's wrong, this deal's going to blow up at some point of time. It doesn't matter how much money or opportunity is in it. So and it doesn't mean they have to be an evil person because when we say the wrong person, it just means them. it's either a character issue, uh, a capacity issue, or a competence. All right? And so you've got to look at those three things, you know? So, like, as we've looked at some other ventures, is someone's, you know, look at someone with a great character. Their competence is good, but then look at their capacity. They're too stretched. They can't fulfill on it, you know, or it could be, you know, character's an easy one. You know, not, you, know, if you can't trust them. It's, it's just going to blow up. doesn't matter how good the deal is. And the other one could be competence. They could have a lot of time. They could have a great character, but are they able to do it? So I think if you look at those three things, um, that they're really important when you're, you know, particularly in, in development or whatever you're going to do in business, 
you, you can't get away from that. So if you go into business, you've got to see it as a very intimate relationship. And if you have, you can't do a good deal, it doesn't matter how good the deal or the opportunity, if I could give anything to your listeners as some, some wisdom, is it will never work out. Because who it is will impact, will always impact that venture. And don't delude yourself that you, you'll get away with it by striking a good deal or taking advantage or making it in your favor or whatever. Ultimately, deals, transactions, and businesses are all people anyway. Khalil recognizes that if you took people out of the equation, nothing would exist. And they influence it more than anything else. So even technology and that, people are going to be critical in, in, in having a positive, negative, or neutral impact. 2016, I bought a house at Wild Beach, right? uh, Northern Beach of Sydney, uh, Palm Beach, like pretty prestigious sort of area. It's a couple of million dollars and thought, you know, it's it a bit more of a, an emotional thing, but I thought it'd go up really well. And three years later, it had gone sideways. I, I could have just bought a, a normal investment property in uh, St. Mary's or Western Sydney at a better. Strange enough, again, with, with the advent of uh, COVID, the areas exploded because it was so far away. Like you said, where is it? Uh, but uh, because it's just so far away, northern parts of Sydney, it was just ge- geographically, it ended up being a second home place for people. People have that as a little bit of that holiday. But now, because people can work remotely far off and lifestyle locations, like lifestyle has trumped accessibility. Another low point for him was following the GFC when properties were down. At that time, he was looking for a home to purchase and renovate. And, and sort of part of our story was at Paddington and I, I was just driving the bargain too hard for 20000 more or uh, less, you know, and, which was negligible. It was like 1% of the price and the property doubled in two years, you know. Uh, you know so it was, more not, not, it was a bad decision in that I was being just too frugal, you know, and it's, it's something that I, you know, I work with clients, people over time, they say, I can't, I can't afford it more than a million dollars. And it's just human psychology. I said, can you afford a million and one thousand dollars? Or, you know, not. and it's sometimes we, we undo ourselves with just nice and symmetrical numbers when it's, when we, we don't actually objectively look at the opportunity. So you can do yourself by, uh, do yourself in by, you know, making the wrong decisions, but you could also miss opportunities because of being emotionally bound to certain numbers. So that was an opportunity cost decision because I was just trying to get a nice round number that I liked. There are many lessons to be learned in property and in life. One of the property lessons Khalil learned the hard way was not to drive too hard a bargain. In an effort to save $20,000, he ultimately lost out on a property that doubled in value in two years. You look at me and you go, there's the 1% difference from you know, 2 million to 2 million and 20,000. Is it a good property or a bad property by adjusting by 1%? It isn't. So if the property was fundamentally good, and so sometimes people miss deals because they're so adamant about the symmetry of numbers and just human psychology around that. When everything was right about it, again, look at it more as a percentage, right? And say, if I've done all the work and the homework and your due diligence as you should, is it going to become a bad property by one or 2% difference? And if it isn't, don't get so hung up on, you know, so it should be more of a value-based judgment than a price-based judgment, but sometimes people make those price-based decisions when they should be making a value-based decision. He always has several meals worth of nuggets of wisdom on his plate and he isn't afraid to share. I think for me it's like sort of if you can marry what you're really passionate about and what you're good at, um, you can do really well. And so for me, again, you know, it's sort of a, um, a theme of aha moments and it was 
you know, as I said, I was in financial planning, but I like property and I like design and what have you. And so, A, pushing our, our business and partners and into more property-focused and using financial planning strategic approach to that. But then it was blending my passion for design. So I looked at our brand, and, you know, we paid great graphic designers and everything. They said, oh, you know, financial service should do blue and everything. And I was always interested. I, like, I love luxury brands, not for the prestige. And, you know, I actually don't like wearing, um, I wear black most of the time. You know, <laughs> oh, he, used to wear, he used to wear jeans. So he's that, got that California leg back. But I'm a mixture of, you know, put, put Tom Ford and, and Steve Jobs together. And it's sort of like when, when Italian and, or, you know, high-end design. But not for, not for the um, idea of, you know, hey, look at me. I've got, I don't like wearing big, I don't want to be a billboard for a, a brand. All right. But what I do like about it is the craftsmanship, the design, and again, the whole, that theme of design. And so, you know, our office, the way we designed it, and you can see sort of marble and nice lighting and what have you and that. But yeah, and even our branding, we went through black and gold and all that. And it was like, everyone kept telling me the designers and the, and the, and the marketers, and this, you need to have the brand as accessible. And I said, no, I, I want to I make the brand as if Tom Ford or Giorgio Armani was doing a financial services brand. But it was interesting as we did it, it, you know, I pushed away and we did the colors and we set up the office and we put so much design and everyone might, might have thought, oh, you guys are doing, too, you're too successful. And we invested a lot and then we did our branding, our packaging and just even, you know, everything. And we, we went on a number of awards and it actually opened up great doors in, in, in different ways. In 2010, he sat down to come up with a vision statement for the organization. We didn't have anything at the time. We were subleasing off our accountants in a windowless office you know and uh but but i wrote this vision statement and but it was important because i, I stopped being a financial planner and being bound by the technical thing and not then just get into product and that and it's you know if you've ever heard the simon Sinek, how great leaders inspire action people buy why you do something intuitively we're doing that and 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 writing down our core purpose and our core values and then Really making sure everyone lives, and it was—it's then about gathering great people and and, and and delivering all that. But as I said to you, this is a long answer to your simple question: is what's the aha moment? Is I took that design element, so I did that in my private property investing or, or, or buying homes, and a lot of time we, we moved in numbers because I'd buy properties off the plan of friends that are developers' apartments, do them up, and sell them, make a profit. And I kept I did that a few times, so not so convenient because you're moving house a lot, but it was a great way to build personal wealth, and. And then I thought, well, how about if we start applying that into a business context? And the business context was, let's focus on property, but people, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd look at find and source properties from other people. And so it's just an investment property, don't worry about it. But I thought, hmm, why don't we start designing the properties ourselves? So we engage our own architects. Let's get a bit of return per square meter. And, and, and one of the problems is when you went to some, um, you know, estates and developers like Lynn Lease and Stockland who started focusing on branding their own estates, they didn't want investment properties because they were rubbish and, and they, were, they were terribly built. But we started showing so they let us come into estates because they actually saw some of our product was better than the owner-occupied product. And, and it's that value through, des, through design. And so and it was once said by someone about Steve Jobs, he understood desire and he created desirable products. And, and people you know, didn't put a value on design. It was always more the accountants saying, let's make sure that everything fits the dollar thing. But... It was that usability, the aesthetics, the beauty, and the purpose. It was not just skin deep, but it looks good. It had to function well. He 
found that his theme of aha moments also helped him along his personal journey. And whether I develop or build houses or do them up or, or what have you or in development or in our investment products, taking that design ethos and putting our core, or then it, as I said, as we got into specialist disability accommodation. So to me, it was to take and blend these passions, put them in and, you know, it's never wrong if, like you said before, right? if it comes out of you and they're your core values and you clearly articulate them and get everyone to align. And that's, I guess, how any great, um, you know, I'll take a step because of how we um, focus on our culture. Not only do you design the products and the services, you need to design your culture. And there's a term now called cultural architecture. All right. And the people that are, that are you engage as consultants as cultural architects because culture divides them. So I mean, like, Again, like, you know, if you're born in Australia, there's no, no one gives you a handbook and says, this is how you are in Australia. The, the, the customs, the, the, the egalitarian society, all these things are just, they're the unwritten rules that you have. But when you try to build a team or a group of people, you need to have, like, what are our values? And so you look at the cultures that dominate, right? They have a certain value systems or companies, which now, like, you know, these companies have cultures and their economies are greater than countries. Or you look at cu cultures of civilizations that were once world uh, empires, like the Greek empire. But, but look at where Greece is today, highly embedded and nowhere. Because culturally, there are things where people don't, you know, their values have actually brought them down. And so I think if you can really have strong values and articulate them and live them out and, and, and keep repeating them in a creative way and making sure everyone's a, a, a steward of those values in your organisation, that's how you can have an impact. And so then that's why we have innovation in our company because of those values. The amount of work that's gone into that to make it so easy and simple and usable is, is incredible. And if you watch and listen to the videos, I say for, for, a, 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 for a one yes, there's a thousand no's. And it just shows that rigor and standard put to, to really develop something amazing. And it's the difference between excellence and perfection. So excellence is for wimps, perfection's for the real deal. And what I mean by that is that to excel, I mean, like, let's say there's average. If you go past average, that's excellence. You've excelled. But perfection is driving for, you know, the benchmark as a standard. And there's a difference. So some people are happy to excel, but, you know, and I am a perfectionist in that regard. But it is about saying, you know, let's set a standard here and not accept the status quo as our benchmark, but accept an ideal. And that can be a hindrance in its own right. But however, that's how you can really impact or transform things because you, you, you say, let's make this the standard, not accept what status quo is. He's worked with numerous developers to take stock and add value, including with off-the-plan properties. One of the other people that impacted me, he was a developer developing luxury properties in Cronulla. And what I'd bought off the plan, I actually, like one of the ones that I made most of the money on was, it was the the cheapest apartment in the block. It was a large two-bedder at the back and there's a storage, but, and I just said, look, could I, you know, make this into eternal room? The unit was big and could I spend a little bit more on, on the landscaping and the interior fit out? And he said, oh, you're overcapitalizing and everything. So I bought it for $299 at the time, spent about $80,000 doing it up. And, you know, not many developers would do this, you know, because it's too much of a headache. Uh, but it was enhancing that product and then, about two, and it's funny because the, the value from CBA came out and said, "Oh, it's probably worth four hundred fifty thousand." I said, well, "I don't know what you're talking about." And I sold it about four months after that for eight hundred twenty thousand. So, 
and, and he, he said, yeah, I, I use my financial advisor to buy investment property. And I looked at him and thought, you're a valuer. If anyone would know, there's better opportunities. So uh, I didn't have much uh, regard for his, his judgment. But it was just, again, an intuition of saying, okay, what would, again, what would someone want in an area and added value through design? And, um, you know, and it was just, again, but buying, it was part of it's there, but also buying in an area that was lifestyle driven, which was, you know, a, a coastal property and that. So I said to you, one area I did that was, um, uh, well, beach, which didn't work out, but I didn't actually get to design the product. I was just thinking the area would have its natural appreciation, but it didn't. So that wasn't great. But otherwise, thinking about, okay, what's the value in the area, Cronulla? And we did about, uh, I think it was two apartments, no, three apartments we did in uh, Cronulla. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that kind of existed because whenever people say they buy it off the plan, they buy it off the plan and then, you know, go straight in and move. I didn't realize you could actually add more value to something that's new. It's just unique in that the time in the market, so it wasn't just all through my doing um, and also the fact that my friend was the developer and he allowed me to buy the product and add some value through some design. When it comes to his strategy, he's built his wealth in two parts. Number one is the house part. And so I'm currently in a build of a, a fairly luxury home at Cronulla, which is probably the largest asset that we have. And built that up. And, um, you know, and that's been, again, as I said, investing and, and, and moving step by step. So from Cronulla, moved to Cabarita, and that was actually getting an apartment off the plan from Mervac and it went down. That was a bad one at the beginning. But because it was in the water and we stayed, it doubled after a decade. But then it was to buy a block of land at Cronulla and, and, and that was the first one I designed from the ground up and it's at, coming at the end to finish. Uh, but the value increase not in the land but through the, the you know, design and me you know, investing a lot of time in it has added a lot of value. And also I've invested in a few apartments at Tamaroma and I sit on the owners' corporation. It was an old building. Um, and it's the highest apartment in Tamaran, which is near Bondi Beach. And the, the, the renovation is started with the owners' corporation and it was an old building that looked like a Soviet hospital. And the, the, the chair of the owners' corporation times was pretty savvy. She thought, let's put two apartments, two penthouses at the top to pay for the renovation of the building. And so that just did its finalisation in the next three months and they're beautiful. I mean, they're 33-metre-wide penthouses. They're going for over $20 million dollars. Uh, I've got my friend as an interior designer to help with that. And and so there's a lot of value added in that, um, you know, begin being a lifestyle location. And, and the one better is there, the rental appraisals are between, you know, fifteen to $1,800 a week. Being a, a um, strong lifestyle locale. He's also involved with land developments and subdivisions as well as income-based products. Our dual income product, when I began to blend the design but the economics together, we started looking for products we could put two properties on one block of land and we favoured more land-based investments because the land appreciation. But, you know, and there was always the talk of uh, you either have capital growth or you have high yield, you can't have both. And we said, why can't we have both? And not one of my, or not one of mine, but our customers upset that they make too much money. No one brings up and complains, oh, my, my rental property is paying me too much money. They just ring up and say, when can I do the next one? But they still have land appreciation. And even, you know, so many I've read so many articles by so many professionals in the industry or some of the gurus in the industry, oh, you, you know, dual income properties, you shouldn't touch them, there's no after-sale market. And, that. and it was just absurd because they've existed for millennia. If people have shared accommodation for millennia. He 
recognizes the fact that people need supplementary income and that there's hundreds of thousands of homes with a second dwelling in Australia. And it supports someone's living, you know, or lifestyle, I should say. You know, they live in their rent out in a room or something in a garage and all that. And there's just these absurd stories and just, you just don't look at the, you know, so I'm not sort of one of the industry people or go to the events or know who's the who in the industry. We just chart our own course and, and you know, and, and just go and say, look, this makes sense. Innovate. And, you know, we, we even trademark the term one property, two rents. And it's been fantastic. So design product, getting a bit of a term per square meter. We now have a property management business. We manage 1,300 properties. So we've got a great feedback loop. And that's growing really well. And, um, you know, and, the, and, and as I said, generating a high rental yield and capital growth as a product. And so fundamentally, I, you know, I haven't built my portfolio solely in that stuff there. I've done some other more development based, so, which is more of a business and requires a lot of time. So it's not something our clients come to do that, you know, they're interested in passive, like that, you know, they've got their, their, their careers, their businesses and what have you. And that's far more easily replicable. And sometimes, some, like I said to you, I would have been better to buy one of those products instead of that place at Well Beach in Western Sydney, in Jordan Springs, one of the areas which was, like I said, was in, did far better than that place at uh, Well Beach, you know. And it was a stock on the state that, you know, people made fun. You know, we, we sold those for, you know, 2010, 2012, about 459000 which, you know, is unheard of in Sydney now, isn't it? So... <laughs> Waverley Council in Sydney's eastern suburbs had put a fire order on the building of temporary apartments. All in all, it was going to take between $8 million and $9 million to get the building up to standard. But the building had no balconies, didn't have a car park, and it was a concrete cancer. So you'd spend $10 million to bring it up to a trash. Like I said, it looked like a Russian hospital, old Russian Soviet hospital. So uh, the chair at the time, Christine, she said, oh, look, you know, why don't we get a development, get some architects, got a great eastern suburbs architect. I wasn't in the building at the time. And I only found out through one of my architectural newsletters. That's what got me interested. And I saw this thing, oh, look, you know, penthouses are going to go on the top by Tobias Partners as an architect that I've followed. And I went and had a look at it and I looked up on real estate. Oh, there's a one better for sale. And at the time it was $605,000 in 2014. And... 2015, yeah. And so, yep. Yeah. But you looked at what the prices of, you know, and this is gun barrel views of the ocean, never to be built. You know, yeah. And, but, and, but it said, oh, you know, once it's done, there'll be, you'll get a car space, there'll be new balconies, the whole building will be renewed with the sale of these penthouses. So there's a risk at the time. But again, you looked at it, you would say, there's no way I want this. But it was having the vision, but knowing again through design. Like, now, it's been a long journey, uh, but it's, it's paying off in the end and it's coming. It's, taking a lot of my personal time to get involved in it. Anybody strolling the Bondi to Bronte walk can see the building in all its glory, where it now has eight stories, including two penthouses. To top it off even further, it can never be built out. It's an anomaly. It was actually Harry Seidler's first building in Sydney, but he disavowed it because the people who built it didn't build it right. So there's a lot of remedial work in that. And it's, it's, a, it's an iconic project, but it's also a landmark project because the New South Wales government based the, the, the change in the residential or into the strata laws that allowed that 75% rule now because a lot of buildings are now getting up to their 40, 50, 80-year-old and they have to be renewed. And before you had to get 100% of the vote to get it over the line, but this was the test case in a sense. Um, and now you can get 75% of owners uh, to vote for either selling or renovating. And that's what we're going to start seeing now is a lot of renewal of these old buildings and some where it's permissible are 
building something on top to help fund the renovation. If you want to look at the project, it's called Sky Tamarama. So if you just Google it, Sky Tamarama, S-K-Y-E, if anyone wants to look at it, it's, uh, it's got an interesting story and there's been a few articles written about it. It's been a long journey and there's been a bit of work and, you know, uh, a few challenges and stuff like that, but it's certainly been a great learning experience for me. As well as his love for books, which have helped him along his journey, he acknowledges he also owes a lot to his faith, church and community. You know, observed how things were done and were great leaders in the church in that regard. So then it was probably more observing and reading about great business leaders and, and you know, and people and admiring companies. One of the companies I, I love for years is a hand wash or a skin products company called Aesop. You know, yeah. Again, a design-driven company, and I loved its ethos. And recently, it's just been bought by Estee Lauder for a couple of billion dollars. It's a great success story. And But, you know, when everyone was building each store that looked the same, they made every store different. And they designed it for its own location and that. So I followed more brands and stories and read about, like I said, reading about businesses. And actually, there's, there's a couple of influential books in that. So one was called um, 100 great businesses and the minds behind them. And I think it was written by uh, a couple of Australian journalists. And it's a great book. Um, and it was just about three to five pages based on a, a hundred different companies. Everything from the starting of Kellogg's to Apple to Google to realestate.com. And then, then they wrote another one called 58, uh, 50 Great E-Businesses and the Minds Behind Them. But it was just inspirational stories. And you just looked at these all these different companies and how they started and that. So that to me was interesting. I said... Uh, He was also influenced by Apple, Warren Buffett, and one book in particular. And I'd say probably one of the most impactful books was a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins. And that was, again, transformation, which, which was, again, the principles out of that was, you know, again, it wasn't a self-help book. It was, it was based on principles and empirical research. He was a Stanford professor. And he didn't, it wasn't just him writing it. It was a research team of 25. And that there was, you know, at the time of my life, I was, again, I was sort of still volunteering a couple of days a week in my church and doing, and I was torn between the two. And, and, you know, and one of the key principles in that book was find your hedgehog, which is what can you be, what can you be passionate about and be the best of the world at? And, and, and great companies were ones that were successful by what they didn't do, what they chose not to do. And it was at that sort of juncture reading that, A, we cut the financial and just started focusing on the things we were going to do. Even personally, I made decisions to have more boundaries and limit what I should do. And then again, one of the principles in that was, you know, great leaders focused on first on who, then what. And it was all about getting good people. And so I'd write down in my diary, who's next? So I'd try to collect talented people. And, you know, to have all these businesses, all these opportunities was always about creating talent and, you know, recruiting talent, inspiring them and, you know, making them part of your culture. And that was, so that was a very influential book for me was good to grow the culture's there and it's and it's you know uh, and there is there are principles in that culture that ensure that it isn't tied to a genius and that's what, and, and steve job was intentional that he actually got against some stanford to make sure to try to codify the, and make sure that it wouldn't um be linked to him he, he was aware of that problem where everyone would look and say what would steve do and you hear Tim Cook say that all the time. I, I, I needed to figure out what I needed to do, not what Steve did. And he was conscious of that as well. If you met yourself, say, 10 years ago, what do you think you would have said to him? Certainly focus a lot more. I mean, I, I know I shared that in, um, you know, saying that was a transition, hearing that from good to great. But to even 
say no more to things that were really good opportunities or what I thought would be. Um, and so just to be more disciplined in limiting what I was doing. He got some opportunities that weren't necessarily core and that seemed okay, but that took a little more time than he would have liked. Also in, uh, I guess, the type of people we tried to emulate in our company was, was you know, try to get more consultants internally. And uh, um, uh, my business partner, they watched some of those uh, real, top real estate agents in the US, you know, the million, million dollar hour, whatever in that. And I went and listened to some of those guys and we spent a lot of time trying to replicate the talent at the top. And sometimes that wasn't the answer. And it would have been just better that we, we really focus on building infrastructure around our key directors and so on, because they've, they've, they've always found it hard to find people, those great sales guys. And, and so it was like, okay, what do we build? Let's focus on instead of trying to you know, farm out all this business to people that sort of just didn't get what we get. So there was a lot of time wasted around that, you know. And it's, I think sometimes the appeal is I'll, I'll just get someone to do the work and I'll sit back and get the reward. <laughs> and that didn't work. So it, it, was, it should have been quicker to make those judgment calls and just run it a little bit leaner um, in that regard. Looking forward to the future, what are you most excited about, say, in the next five years of your journey? So something we've been working on for a while, and I don't know if I'm sure you've been in the property industry or, or education of people in property, is, is housing affordability and rental affordability. So we're just about to release a white paper we've been working on for a while called Multiply the Supply. And it, again, it's from our wheelhouse where we're building these uh, dwellings that can house Two, two families, basically. And so what we find really um, missing out there, it's a really simple thing. It's already happened in New Zealand, the UK, and California, is we just basically going to lobby the government. We want to get a change.org. So everyone just stay tuned for it. It's called Multiply the Supply. We want to get a petition going, and we want to basically uh, get the, uh, laws, planning laws changed at a state level that allow anywhere where there exists one house on at least a 300-square-meter block, a duplex to be built, two dwellings. And it can be done um, under a CDC private or a compliant development consent. So councils can't deny it or delay it. So the idea is, you know, I mean, the, the federal government says, you know, there are at least 10,000 affordable houses over the next five years. You've got 350,000 immigrants coming in the next 12 months. That's like one and a half week supply. Uh, so, and there are families, people have been displaced, they can't live in it. So the only way you're going to release hundreds of thousands of blocks, uh, properties to market where there's already existing infrastructure, as you say, where there is one house, allowed to. It's a very simple solution. And it doesn't cost the government anything because the private sector, people will say, well, I can lock the value. So it's really just land utilisation. It's not high rise. And the fact is by 2030, 32% of households will be single person households. And, and over 50% will be you know, one or two person households. With that, he notes that the idea that every home needs to have four to five bedrooms is impractical. So if you can unlock all of the land supply in, in regional areas within our cities, because the problem's all over the place and there's nothing on the horizon that is going to bring enough supply and you can't build all high-rise because everyone doesn't want to live in high-rise. But if you can just say where there's a block of land, and if you remember years ago, I don't know if you do, but people, oh, people used to subdivide when they had you know 1,200 square meter blocks. They, they're knocked down. At it. But what's happened is the planning laws of everyone's done that. No one does that anymore because... No one's got a 1,200 square meter block, but they're rare. And the problem you have also is that the councils who hold, who are the gatekeepers here, the councillors are voted in by the existing landowners. 
who then protect their ownership. And we don't want anyone else to live here, so you get nimbyism. So the only way you can change this, and the mandate's really coming now because it's this, we've got a, there's, this, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because you've got a, a um, section of society that can't get into the property market, but it's also effective. It becomes generational because then they can't help their kids. And you create a massive divide because those that have then can compound wealth, access the equity and keep building wealth. But if you can't get into the market because it's not affordable, and so we've got a systemic issue, and if governments really want to do it, it's, it's very simple. I mean, it's not the only solution, but it's a simple one. And you can do this all the way out to Western Sydney and that. You just can create great planning laws that improve the standard. We, we want high standards in these laws, not to dilute them. And what it will do is regenerate all of the old inefficient old building stock that's not efficient because there's the economics to do it. And as I said, if you do it as a private certificate, and they've done this, as I said, in other nations that are struggling with the same issues, if, if you don't let council get in the way and you make it a state-based law, and that's what we've done with our product, the dual income product is based on a, the rule that you can do a, a secondary dwelling on a 450 square metre block, but it's a single title, so you can't sell it separately. And this was done over a decade ago. That set of environmental planning is great because councillors can't stop it and it can be done. What we're saying is update that, push it around. So again, long answer to a short question, what's the future there? But I'm passionate about this because again, what's our core purpose? To empower millions of people to live the life they want. And if we can now go into lobbying and take, again, what our DNA is through great design, good innovation and that, you can have transformed. And that's probably one of the most pressing things in our society now is somewhere to live. And if we can unlock more home ownership and rental affordability just purely through supply and just the solution sits right in front of us, that would be that. And probably then the other thing is um, creating institutional funds to do what we've done for clients. And probably finally my biggest dream is um, to get into vertically integration into building and to create a prefabricated building technology company where you manufacture the houses, build them in a beautiful design. I guess it's like cars, treating houses like cars. Um, because of the model that we have, if we can, if we can manufacture them with, with beautiful design, like no, no one goes into a dealership and goes, I'd like to design my own car. There's been you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions, invested in the design and the engineering, but you know the price and the product gets delivered to you. The only way you can do that is if you have a limited number of products, but spend all the money in design. So you, you remove a level of choice, you allow a little bit of customizer, you can change the wheels and you know, the color and that, but no one's going to spend hundreds of thousands in the design and top-end architects for project homes. But what happens if you someone else could do it at that level, infuse that all in there, manufacture and deliver it? So there's a lot more to come, Tyrone. <laughs> well, Sam, I'm going to have to say you have achieved so much in such a you know your your life as well. How much of that success that you've achieved is due to your hard work, skill, intelligence, and how much of it do you think has been contributed towards luck? I would first of all say not luck, but opportunity. The fact that I'm in Australia, and, and one, of, one of the actually other books that I like is Outliers, which is by Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, and he demystifies success because it would be arrogant to say this is just purely my hard work. The fact that I just live in Australia, the, the finance system, the opportunity affords me, like if I was in Sudan, I would not have the same opportunities as I have in Australia. So half of it is just the fact that I'm in this nation. The laws and the opportunities, the, the great financial institutions and all those sorts of things. Uh, and then, yeah, the balance would be, you know, certainly hard work, persistence, diligence and the people that, that I work with and surround myself with or, 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 or connect with. 
Thank you to Sam Khalil, our guest on this episode of Property Investory.